Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside from the Upper West Side of Manhattan and an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Uh, what's up is, Andrew, I think we're changing formation in, in uh, with the podcast today. I think we're doing things a bit different. You could say we're mixing it up a bit. Uh, yeah, I suppose I would agree with that. Elaborate, though. Well, I think that we are going to... It, it, I'm not saying we're a mid-table team that's worried about getting sucked into a relegation battle, but I think we've decided to freshen our formation up. So what we've done is we're going to do the usual... We're going to talk about the topics of the day, but we're going to do two interviews. This is uncharted territory for us. We're playing two up front. Yeah, I'm actually really excited about this. So, I mean, I always am, but uh, the first one, JJ, Matt Pence wrote uh, a piece for The Athletic that just, it so caught my eye. I texted it to you as soon as I saw it. I said, we must speak with him about this immediately because it's on a topic matter that we have talked about for years on this program, and that is the lightning rod element of certain U.S. men's national team guys. And Matt spoke with some of them, and I thought it was fascinating. And because, you know, we're just coming out of a, a international window where lightning rods were on full display and, the you know, the full fervor of U.S. men's national team love and hate was kind of all out there all at once. Felt like the right time as we're kind of settling back into club football. Felt like the right time to kind of maybe have a discussion on on some of those lightning rods and and then we move on back to the club scene. But uh, So Matt will join us in a little bit. I'm, I'm really excited about that, JJ. Yeah, and you, sp- you spoke about the right time. There was a, a time carved out at the weekend on Saturday for what we considered, I don't know if we still do, the third best player in the world, one of the greats we thought he'd be. Well, <laughs> it was his, he turned 30 on Saturday, Neymar. So I thought with his documentary on Netflix coming out, um, which I don't know if you've seen. No. Yes, Neymar, A Perfect Chaos. Uh, I have watched it. I will talk about it. But um, we thought it'd be a good time to to look at Neymar's career. I, I feel like I feel like thirty is not a particular milestone anymore. But it's an age that seems to sneak up on everyone, and in football, it seems like an important age. Yeah, um, I'm just thinking now what you said there. A guy who we've long considered the third best player in the world. Well, I I always thought it was it was Ronaldo, Messi, Neymar. Suarez would come into that then. Yeah, then there was kind of a revolving door after those three. But now, mm. yeah, is you know Neymar has been just besieged by injuries in big moments, unfortunately, because I do believe as a talent, he is he is worthy of of kind of being the next guy for these you know all these years after Ronaldo and Messi. Um, but I you know can you still say he's the third best player in the world? You know, is um, he is he perceived in the same way that Mo Salah is right now or Robert Lewandowski has been for the past couple seasons I don't know no I don't I don't think so and I but I also think uh, in terms of achievement in in those in the years since we'll say the 2015 Champions League final when he was entering his peak years you have to say it's been pretty barren yeah um so 
like you said, with this 30th birthday is a milestone moment for him. Um, later in the podcast, we're going to have a conversation with Sergio Patrick. Longtime fans of this podcast will know him um, from when he was uh, with Radio Bandeirantes in Rio, covered Brazilian team, has followed Neymar's career since its inception, since he was a teenager. Uh, so I, I can't wait for that conversation as well to kind of take stock on what has been a really interesting, sometimes controversial soccer career. But JJ, we start before all that with some of the events going on over the weekend in the past couple days. Uh, and we begin in Africa, JJ, where Senegal defeat Egypt on penalties to win AFCON 21. Congratulations to them. I was just kind of this morning scrolling through on Twitter and, and seeing some, you know, some of the websites, BBC and Sky Sports, and, and they're showing images of the the celebrations in Senegal and Dakar and just, wow, the, as you would expect, I suppose, but just to see it and to see what it meant to the people of those countries to finally get this after so many close calls and having some of these teams that were that, that were thought so highly of that couldn't quite break through, uh, to see the joy spill out now that they finally did do it and in such dramatic fashion, it was it was pretty cool. I couldn't help but feel really happy for them. Yeah, and uh, it's a shame that the the final itself didn't live up to its billing. Oh, there's JJ. Well, no, that's that's not theirs, JJ. Yeah. Well, we we spoke at the, we spoke at the start of this tournament about the early games, and we thought, oh, they're low scoring, and even say you you didn't get to see all of the games, maybe you missed some, but the reports weren't good. There were turgid kind of football. This was a this was a particularly bad final, and um, you know, a bad final deserves. Do you know what I was thinking about though, Andrew? I was thinking, I I I saw a tweet. And the tweet said, I hope this pen- this terrible final goes to penalties now because we deserve that. <laughs> and it's it's almost like if there's a if there's a, a goal scored right dramatically at the end to win the game, that's not enough because you've invested 19 minutes in this game. So you better give me the drama and the the tension of penalties now that I've endured this 90 minutes. And, and, <laughs> and then another person had a great idea. They said, we need to figure out an app that alerts you whenever a game anywhere in the world is going to penalties. So you can tune in and watch it. And I, I really do like that idea. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Because so, let's be honest, finals can be just, particularly in soccer, can be drab. Mm-hmm. Don't care what anyone says, because I can guarantee you people are typing right now out their fame, their favorite final, you know, the 2006 Gerrard FA Cup final and every guys, you have seen bad finals way more than you've seen good ones. Yeah, I would agree with that. I wonder if this was a game because Sadio Mane missed the penalty early. Yeah. I wonder if this was a game that really could have used a goal there. If oh, maybe that sure. would have just completely changed the complexion of what Egypt had to do for the next, you know, 80 minutes or so. A, a goal, you know, it just kind of removes the paranoia in a team. And it means, all right, okay, we're, we're trailing now. We have to come out and play. And it just opens thing, things up so much. Um, but I don't want a late goal in this circumstance. No, no, no. All the way to penalties now. Well, that that is what happened. And, yeah, you know, in looking at that, I wanted to talk about Sadio Mane for a sec. Um, because I talk about you know the me feeling happy for the people of of Senegal that are celebrating in this way, and Mane in particular is somebody that I found myself feeling happy for for a couple reasons. One, to have missed the penalty early in the final, 
and then have in the penalty shootout the winning penalty fall to you. I just wonder how there's always going to be a ton of pressure when you're taking any penalty in a cup final in a penalty shootout. But you're now stepping up to take what would be the winning penalty after you've already missed one earlier in the game that conceivably could have been enough to win it for you. Like, how much more pressure does that even add that he missed one earlier in the match? That was a lot bearing down on him, and he took it well. He took both of them well. It's just the first one was right at the keeper, but he he hit the hell out of it. Um, Just placed it poorly. He absolutely smashed it, and um, (laughs) Salah had... uh, had intervened to give uh, instructions to the Egyptian yeah. goalkeeper. <laughs> yeah. But like Mane in particular, I was reading this, I think it was at the BBC, where Mane had a penalty saved in the quarterfinal shootout defeat to Cameroon in 2017. Two years later, uh, he failed to convert in the group game against Kenya and in the last 16 tie against Uganda. Uh, so like there's a history in this tournament of this great player missing key penalties. And then he missed one in the final. Uh, so, man, for him to get the for him to get the winning one after kind of having to shoulder the load of of all of those previous misses, and you know the other thing with him is all of this Liverpool success. Like he's obviously been a massive part of it. He's he's a great player, one of the great players in in Europe, but he's always been a little bit under the radar. I wonder if you feel that way too. Between Salah, certainly. But even Virgil Van Dyke, like it felt like Van Dyke came aboard and that was the missing piece, you know. And for Mane to then get this trophy playing against Salah's Egypt, uh, it felt almost poetic in a way. I'm not saying that there's this rivalry between them. I don't get that sense. But you know, for Mane to have this moment after kind of being, uh, you know, sitting in the back seat for these years with Liverpool, um, it was. Uh, I just again felt good for him. I don't know. Sometimes you. Uh... You see a player go out and perform for his national team, and he's away from the, from from that usual environment in which you see him—the red jersey at Anfield—and I don't know. It just it, it freshens things up, and his face holding the trophy, uh, you know, th- those were great pictures and great moments. Did it bother you what he said afterwards? What did he say afterwards? He said, "It's the best day of my life and the best trophy of my life. I won the Champions League and some other trophies, but this is a special one for me." This is more important for me. I'm happy for myself, my people, and all of my family. Well, considering how he views his country, playing for his country, and also just has a sense of uh, his role as a very moneyed celebrity athlete, considering all the things we know about him, it doesn't shock me that he would say that. I mean, winning anything for you. Ask Paul Pogba. I guarantee you if Paul Pogba won a Champions League for Manchester United, it wouldn't mean anything close to what his successes with France have meant to him. Uh, I agree with that. I don't know what it means for him to be playing for Manchester United sometimes. <laughs> if, if you were watching on Friday night, and we'll get to it, not a lot. <laughs> um, a couple other things on on this final and this tournament. Uh, any thoughts, JJ, for Egypt in the penalty shootout? They elect to have Salah go fifth, never gets to take his shot, presumably their best penalty taker. Is that is that when you do over, if you could? Yeah, yeah absolutely you do it over. You have to get him in the uh, in the rotate in the penalty kick area sooner. You have to get him in that rotation way way sooner. Yeah. Where uh, would you put your best penalty taker usually? First, first, you would. Okay. Yeah. Get things started on the right foot. Get things started on the right foot. There was all sorts of debates raging about penalties, and 
Um, Jamie Carragher had one, which is even more prescient than who's taking the first penalty. But he's he said he'd heard of teams that have um, won the toss to take the first kick and have deferred, mm-hmm. which we know, there's statistically we know, the first kick is vital and you convert it, you are well on your way. Um, so that's things like that. Um, but I, I often wonder, you know, they have, in, in a tournament, you know, what you're supposed to be, you know, you, you've timed, this is, this, you know, penalties usually in soccer are kind of, in club soccer in particularly, you know, apart from the odd time, they're kind of a, a side issue. They're not, they're not the most important thing, but right. in tournament soccer, in international football, you have to have your system right. And it seems absolutely mad that, uh, that Mo Salah would be, would be so, well, I mean, he wouldn't get to take a kick. Yeah. Your best player doesn't get to take a kick in the most uh, in the defining moment of the game. Makes no sense. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, speaking of Salah, he says that he's ready to go Thursday for Liverpool. Like there is yeah, there is no I, lag time here. Get me back on the field. I, I could understand that of him just wanting to be like Ugh, this brutal memory of of losing a cup final in that way without me getting to take a penalty in the shootout. Like. Just get me back out there so I can just like get right back to playing again. No, 100%. And uh, and we welcome him back. I'm sure. I'm sure you do. Let's go from that now, JJ, to uh, England. Busy FA Cup weekend. I know you've been you've been all in on this FA Cup. It's really it's really nice to see. I've, I've really been enjoying it. I I, I need um, even if, and I, I say this in all honesty. Um, it's not just a lack of a title race, really, in, in English football, though. I, I get Premier League weary and I like just different things and mm. you know whether it's the Milan derby at the weekend or or the FA Cup I I need I need freshness Andrew I I need to mix it up well you got that over the weekend uh Manchester United we were just talking about Pogba and to go out to to Middlesbrough it's just like I don't know it's got a it's just one of those bad year gets worse type moments well they dominate let's get Get this out of the way. They dominated the game. They should have had four or five or three or four in the first half. Middlesbrough came back into it. But, you know, if you look at the team Manchester United had out, Paul Pogba, Bruno Fernandes, <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo, and you look at who Middlesbrough had out. Middlesbrough had Johnny Housen out, who played for Leeds 13 years ago. The last time, um, think about this. Johnny Housen played in a Leeds team that knocked Manchester United out in 2009 or 2010, whenever it was, right? Mm-hmm. And 13 years later, he's do, he's scoring a penalty against them. Saul Bamba scored a penalty. <laughs> Saul Bamba, 38. So there was a, you know, again, with United, it just seems to be like humiliation. Um, now, th- like I said, they should have won the game in the first half, but who cares? They didn't. And, um, and it rumbles on then into next week because, um, you know, prior to the game, we'd seen this, come out of United uh, that you know Jesse Lingard wouldn't be playing um, and you know he had, like he, he had asked for the weekend off or something like that and then Rania con- uh, you know uh, Lingard contradicts this on social media and then you see this report from Rob Dawson uh, Ralph Ranick has told his Manchester United players he would prefer they solve disputes with him face to face rather than venting on social media that's a culture thing like, and and Ragnick is right to say that. 
I that is know. a culture thing. So, so Rania says, I, I never ever read or communicate by those social media accounts. I don't exist there and wouldn't have time to do that. So therefore it's always better. I always communicate with the players directly. Um, I did that with Anthony Martial and Jesse, but maybe I'm a different kind of generation. My generation didn't grow up with the, these kind of things. Um, but it's just, again, it's just, it's like shooting yourself in the foot. It's so unnecessary, it seems. Um, this this stuff, this, I don't know. It, 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 Ragnick's right. It is a generational thing. It's not necessarily unique to Manchester United, but like this, I don't know, sometimes this passive-aggressive approach of going to social media to vent your anger and then not really do anything about it when you're there in the training ground. It's just like that. I don't know who's responsible to try to cut that off at the pass if Manchester United just lack a true leader who would be the one to do that, like a player in that room who could kind of pull these guys aside and just say, don't do this. Like you're creating a toxicity here, whether that's your intention or not, if that's left to the manager to have to do. But the manager's not friends with these guys. Him kind of coming down on them is almost more like a parent doing that rather than a friend doesn't resonate the same way. I don't know. I just, I know that I don't like it. Yeah. Lingard, the club advised me to have time off due to personal reasons, but my headspace is clear and I'll always be professional when called upon and give 100%. Now he didn't get the move away in January that he wanted. Mm -hmm. um, But like, surely the the club should have a line on this, a joint line that everyone's reading off the same hymn sheet. Yeah. And they don't. And it's just, it's more unnecessary stuff at a, at a club that's floundering right now. Yeah. You just, like you went through it before, you just see the players that were out there for United. Ronaldo, oh, and like, how are they losing to, to Burrow? Uh, By the uh, way, this one, my best friend took his two sons over who are Ronaldo crazy. Uh-huh. Got seats at the Stratford end. Um, saw Ronaldo do his back heel, which came off himself and he nearly ran out over the sideline right beside them. So they had an amazing time uh, despite the defeat. But um yeah. Yeah, not to go too much further on this one. I know there's a couple you wanted to get to. Uh but the handball non-call. Your thoughts? Um it's very hard to say that that handball was like incidental or you know, it, it's come up it's 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 popped up off his off his knee and the hand I don't think it's at an unusual position if you're trying to control the ball and he doesn't intentionally do it. And that's that's why that I mean that rule has changed um, a couple of times now in the past five six years. But I mean by the letter of the law, you can make the argument it's not a penalty. But his hand has such a significant role in stopping the ball and making sure it pops right in front of him that um, that I can see why why United <laughs> players and United supporters were very upset. Yeah, that that was my reaction. I said, oh, it was yet another moment where I was just like, you know what, I give up. I don't I don't understand it. The rule can be explained to me a thousand times. They can change it a thousand times. It's never going to well, be perfect. Well, last season that was that was that's not a goal. Um, but but this season and uh, you know a handball that's not intentional uh, coming off, especially when it's bounced up off the knee, uh, you can, you know, it, it, that's in the lead up to a goal that doesn't necessarily rule the goal out. Yeah, uh, JJ Chelsea, your European champions, narrowly escaping Plymouth Argyle. Yeah, I uh, didn't see it to be honest with you, Andrew. I, I was focused on the other games, but um, it, it could that one could have gone badly wrong. Penalty miss uh, with uh, Hardy seeing his penalty saved with two minutes remaining. So yeah, uh, again Chelsea kind of get off the hook there, and um, and a game that we thought because Chelsea were at home, oh, this will be nothing. Um, you got to give credit to Plymouth Argyle coming to Stamford Bridge and giving Chelsea such a such a scare. 
this is maybe this is small-minded, but bear with me. Chelsea almost losing to Plymouth Argyle. Chelsea are the they just won a Champions League. You know, fifth tier Borum Wood beat Bournemouth. Mm. Like, can this stuff happen in in other sports? Like, I, I can't imagine what would be the fifth tier of like the uh, of American football, like high school, like D two, D three. Oh yeah, no. Could you ever imagine like a D three football program beating? I don't know the Dolphins, like. But don't forget, Plymouth Argyle are professionals. I'm talking more about fifth tier Borum Wood, and I know Bournemouth aren't in the top flight, but still, yeah, they, just, they were a minute ago. But that's the that's the that's the the genius, I suppose, or the not the genius, but the the strength of the pyramid, Andrew. You know, you know, Borum Wood will have players who are at academies, top academy players, and they just have dropped down the divisions. They weren't good enough to make it. It still doesn't mean that the the non-league football isn't strong. They play twice a week as well, or maybe uh, depending if they're in cup competitions, they might play three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and some of them are on part-time contracts. It's still a professionalism of a sort. Whereas if you, you there's no real American comparison. Yeah. Also, you know, uh, the difference in physicality between the top NBA team and even one of the top college teams is just night and day. Yeah, I just find it fascinating because I think I, I, it's it's unique to this sport it, in many it ways. It's fascinating to look at what Chelsea had out. Mason Mount, Jorginho, Kovacic, Hakan yeah. Ziyech, Lukaku, Callum Hudson-Odoi. You're right. That shouldn't, it shouldn't be close. But, um, but, but here we but, are. But soccer is much more, it's, a, it's much more of an even playing field. 11 men against 11. That's still 22 professionals out on the field. And, um, yeah, I saw Lukaku coming in for a lot of criticism as well. Again, because of the nature of the opposition. Again, because Chelsea were at home. And again, because he didn't score. You were teeter- teetering right on the edge of some like Ron manager speak there. Oh, wow. 11 v 11, 22 oh, men on the field. It? Jump us for goalposts. Mm, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, let's see, a couple more quick ones. JJ, West Ham, I mean, you talk about Chelsea narrowly escaping. What about West Ham against Kidderminster Harriers? Yeah, and, and, and Kidderminster were by far and away the better team for most of the game and were just, oh, Andrew, if one of their players had just tracked Declan Rice, just got goal side, just discouraged him even slightly, but they didn't, and it was late, and there was, I want to say, a party atmosphere at Kidderminster's ground. Mm. I think they thought they had, the, the, the supporters certainly seemed to think they had the job done, and Rice just... It's a really good goal. He just comes inside and rockets it home into the roof of the net. And yeah, it goes to extra time. And um, and uh, Jared Bowen uh, finds a way to score. Yeah, um, and West Ham advance. We should mention while we're talking about West Ham that the, the video of Kurt Zuma that came out um, that has made international headlines, uh, as I was getting messages about it last night from people I know that have, haven't watched a, a soccer match in, I don't know, years, ever. Uh, disgusting. I, I don't even, like, there's no hot take here. There's no, like, it was, I don't, going to be hard to root for that guy. I would think even West Ham fans would feel that way. Like, to watch a video of, of animal cruelty in that way, um, I don't know. Well, I Not an easy like guy to root for, ever again. I, 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 there, I mean, it's it's disgusting. It's deplorable. Um, to to anyone who treats an animal like that 
should have the animal taken away and rehomed into a, a caring, loving home. Of course. And I cannot believe the Met aren't taking uh, criminal proceedings against it, against Zuma. I mean, they have the video, they have the evidence. It's it's crazy to me, absolutely crazy. And uh, I I think he should be there should be a suspension for this to to harm or to hurt um, a living creature is it's I I an animal, defenseless animal. Yeah. And uh, but again, Andrew, there is um, I'm I'm glad to see the outcry that there that that there there has been on social media as well. But it's always seemed to me that there's been a certain uh, you know, we often hear about stray cats being abused, you know. Um, I, there just seems to be a a perniciousness about violence against cats. Like it's, a, you know, you can just get away with it, you know, because a cat's not, you know, it's not it's not on the same tier as a dog. I, I genuinely feel that a lot of people think that way. And Zuma shouldn't have a cat. He shouldn't have a pet, period, if that's the way he treats him. Slapping the cat in the face, kicking it across the kitchen. Just appalling. It was disgusting. Uh, finally, wanted to close out, JJ, as Frank Lampard makes a really nice first impression at Everton. 4-1, they beat Brentford. Uh, a couple set pieces, corner kicks, they they looked good on those. Mistake from Brentford on the second one. Um, but a brilliant goal from Richarlison on a great ball from Alan. And uh, 4-1, Everton in a, in a tournament that, I mean, we say this every year, but a tournament that they would love to make a deep run in, certainly, now more than ever, maybe. Um, but a, a nice a nice win for Frank Lampard to get things started. Yeah, a, a really good win. I watched that game. Um, uh, Brentford were poor, but everything just needed a win from somewhere, and to do it in an emphatic style was really really good. Um, we let, I again, Everton remain absolutely fascinating. Uh, another fascinating thing that's come up. We don't even. I don't think we have even time to talk about it, but it's called the Lampard transition, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Um, something that happens in interviews where he goes from jovial to serious very, very quickly. I did see that. Yeah. And I think we have audio of that where he did it with me um, about five years ago when he was playing for NYCFC. Oh, I'd have to dig that up. Yeah. Can you can you look for that and we'll have it for next week? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see. Can you notice it in, in the interview as well? And the final thing for me, uh, you talked about Bor- Boreham Wood. Um, there was an amazing moment, a uh, TV moment, where prior to the game, Ian Wright uh, talked to Borum striker Adrian Clifton, who Wright had met 13 years ago in prison as part of a Sky documentary about the rehabilitation of young men in English prisons. And he went out, he straightened out his life, he got a job, he ended up playing semi-pro for uh, Borum Wood, and then he's playing in the FA Cup, and who is commentating on that game, who's in the studio analyzing it, only Ian Wright. Mm. And so um, at the end of the game, uh, Clifton said, uh, thank you, thank you. What more can I say? Thank you. There is hope. There is hope. And they did a lovely little piece prior to the game, a little, um, just a little vignette, little segment of Wright, then 13 years ago, speaking to Clifton in prison, and right now at Wood Stadium, uh, talking about how he had mentored Adrian Clifton and rehabilitated his life. And it's one of the most touching things you'll ever see. So touching, Roy Keane touched him, patted him gently on the knee and said, well done, righty. Wow. A rare moment of emotion from Roy Keane. Indeed. Indeed. I will put that up on our Twitter and our Instagram so you can look at it. Ian Wright, Andrew. Ian Wright is, 
he's one of the good ones. Nice. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Let's uh, let's go ahead. We're going to take a break. When we come back on the other side, like we had talked about at the start of the show, Matt Pence of the Athletic has a fascinating piece up on their website um, about lightning rods in U.S. men's national team soccer culture. Uh, how do they get to be that way? How do they feel about being considered that? Uh, really interesting stuff. We look forward to talking with Matt about all of that. More caught offside still to come. Don't go anywhere. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. JJ, we talked about this um, before the break. This was, you know, sometimes you're scrolling through Twitter, you're, you're seeing things pop up, and something will catch your eye. Oh, yeah. And instantly I saw this article from Matt Pence uh, of The Athletic. As soon as I saw the words lightning rods in the article, I was like, oh, yes, I know what this is about. And sure <laughs> enough, it is about the the rich developing history of lightning rod talent on the U.S. men's national team. We thought the article was fascinating. Right away, we said, yep, we have to speak with Matt Pence about this. And he's kind enough to join us now to talk a little bit more about this article in The Athletic. Matt, what's up? How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, of course. Thanks for for writing this this thing that we've kind of you know we've sort of spoken about this for years on this show. You know, we can go through the names, you know, name and verse: Zardes, Bradley, Josie, Wando. So I'm curious for you in, in sort of the process of writing the story. You wrote this story, and then you know you committed to it, and okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk about you know these polarizing players, and then you. And then you kind of had that moment where it was like, oh, now I got to make these awkward phone calls and see if these guys are going to be willing to talk to me about this. Can you take us through the process of that? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the rationale for talking to a lot of like former national team guys, right? Because you get to a certain point and you get a little bit more introspective and willing to talk about it. So it had started with just kind of like the colonel was it being Jesse Zardes, who is forever. I feel like of the modern national team, he's the guy mm-hmm. that people latch on to and just sort of like every time he makes a mistake, you can just feel the predictable sort of just like sigh on Twitter generally. Um, and so it started with that, but he's talked about it before. And I was talking to my editors and a couple of colleagues. And they're like, well, that's been kind of done talking to Jesse about it. So why don't we just kind of broaden it out and just try to get a bunch of different voices um, and so that happened to kind of involve talking to a couple guys who had, had played for the team a little while ago, which then ultimately led to Wando. Um, and I think I just kind of got lucky in the fact that Wando hadn't necessarily opened up to the extent that he did because he just retired and there's less at stake for him now. And he just seemed a little bit more willing to put it out there, um, which I think made the story a lot better. Matt, um, before we kind of talk a little bit about what what the players said in the piece and 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 how they felt about about this issue, uh, <laughs> a line that caught me early on in your piece was: "Zardes has been a scapegoat for a certain type of U.S. men's national team fan for a while now." Uh, if you'll indulge me here, if you were building a profile or you have a vision of your mind of what that certain type of U.S. men's national team fan looks like, what what would that be? Yeah, I mean, Eurocentric probably and like a little bit unsure of American soccer's place in the world generally. Like I'm based in Seattle um, and so I I followed Jordan Morris's rise pretty closely. And I still remember when he decided to sign with Seattle and stay in MLS. Like it was just such a huge thing. Like there was just a giant segment of the fan base who like assumed that he was going to be a worse player. And I'm not saying that that's not valid at all. Like clearly MLS is it's 
getting better, but it's definitely not the same as like the crucible of Europe, but I've always thought it was a little bit of a simplistic reading. And so there, there just seems to be this split of like a certain type of fan. Like if you're, if you are not like in Europe, like testing yourself to the absolute extent of your abilities, like you're not good enough. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And these are very online fans as well. It's worth pointing that out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of this is kind of like about the extremely online fan, but I do think it exists though in general too. Like I do think that you're, average sports fan like i try to get into that in the story too it's like everybody has had the sensation of the one guy on your favorite team who makes you groan and drives you crazy and so that part is not necessarily just online fans but the criticism is for sure yeah i'm glad you bring up the online element of this because that was something i wanted to go a little bit deeper into because the common one of the common threads throughout the story is social media and you know it's a shame because in theory like it could be so cool like being able to just have this platform where you can so easily interact with these superstar athletes and these players and and these heroes of yours but in turn it's kind of become this really negative space and the guys that you spoke with talked about that how you know they got to make sure after certain games to not check their mentions and they've got family members that do and it kind of seeps back to them i mean in your conversations with these players how much of it would you say is based around hate that they receive through social media platforms? Yeah. I mean, that's something that I got into a lot with Jonathan Bornstein. Um, and he talked about how, cause he's had a long career. He, he's still even playing uh, for the Chicago fire in his late thirties. So he, he has kind of seen the scope of it. And we talked about how, like whenever he was breaking in with the national team in like 2009, 2010, that was really when social media was starting to pick up. And he had, he kind of like very like honestly was like yeah i was really blown away by like how can these strangers be so mean to me mm-hmm. and like that feels almost quaint now right but it's like <laughs> we've just accepted that that's how it is but yeah. like it, i just thought it was a very revealing sort of thing and we also just talked about the difference between up until that point like players really had to dig to read about themselves and even if it was like critical like it was from a journalist or it was from just somebody who like, like they said, like somebody who had some kind of credential to kind of critique what they were doing, or it was a coach or a teammate who was giving them criticism. But like, it's a different thing whenever it's just this faceless stranger who ostensibly should be rooting for you. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that that is like the biggest change in the last 10, 15 years that a lot of these guys have been dealing with. There's a, among many of the interesting elements in the piece, there is the club versus country dynamic. And Tim Ream talks about Fulham and he says, yeah, you still get interaction for performance on, full, uh, on, on social media. But he said, like, it's less hysteric. And that's because fans and supporters get to see you three times a week. Um, so they have a larger sample size of what you're doing. Do you think there is a relationship between the U.S. men's national team supporter groups or or the fans in general and watching club football, in particular MLS, because it strikes me, Matt, that a lot of the supporters of the U.S. men's national team may not necessarily be MLS followers or don't see it closely. And so what they see is Jossie Zardes or, in the past, Josie Altador very very narrowly within the prism of the of the men's national team yeah i think there's something like the sample size thing is definitely a real thing i think and it's just 
a lot of it is just familiarity. Uh, Cause another thing, like I didn't even have this in the story, but another thing that Bornstein talked about was that like, yeah, like in the club game, like you're there all the time and you see a lot of the people, even the people who are like very online, like you see them in the stands of games often and like you interact and there's just, you break down that barrier of it being this like faceless stranger um, mm-hmm. on top of just the fact that it happens way more regularly and there's a bigger sample size and people get less, it, it's just less like bipolar in terms of how you engage with it. Um, whereas the national team, yeah, I mean, I think the U S men's national team, like, I feel like it's fan base has, there are like a lot of elements that make it like, it's almost designed to be this sort of very up and down style fan base. Like it's a small sample size. Um, like it, it is like it's nationalism too, to an extent. Right. I mean, national pride is a different thing than yeah. engaging with your local club team. And there's a lot wrapped up in that. And just the fact that it's like, yeah, there's this MLS versus Europe divide and, and it allows, I don't know, there's just a lot that combines to make them like in sort of naturally, like there's, it, it just, it, it all adds up to be like a very critical environment, um, which I think makes a lot of, and it's a lot. Another thing too, is that like, this is all happening in the shadow of, of 2018. Right. <laughs> it's like, I, yeah. I don't even get into that in the story, but like, that's, that's another element of the fan base that had that really terrible setback of not making the last world cup in very humiliating circumstances. And I think it, it all adds up into a fan base. That's a little bit neurotic at this point. <laughs> yeah. 2018 definitely like it took this thing. This has always existed, but, but the failure of 2018 took it and like kicked it up several notches, certainly put it on steroids. Um, you know, <clears throat> with regard to this, you know, these lightning rods, something that you've talked about here, you know, they they don't play in Europe. Like we're talking about guys that play primarily domestically in MLS. I know you mentioned Bornstein, who's who's bounced around a little bit, but for the most part, we're talking about guys who who have made their home in MLS. Now, bear with me here. See if this makes sense. But I do. I I get that. I understand why American fans want to see their guys playing in Europe and why they cut those guys a little bit more slack, maybe. But I do sometimes find it strange. I wonder if this idea came up at all. Like I sometimes feel like logic would sort of tell you that like fans would almost want to root for guys playing for their local clubs, for their domestic league, to try to prop this league up. You know, the U.S. is all about underdog stories. The U.S. soccer team has kind of made its bones on being an underdog soccer team in in global soccer, and yet it feels like the underdog stories within the U.S. men's national team are the ones that become lightning rods for fans. Is that, am I reaching in, in looking at it that way? No, I don't think you're reaching, although I, I would sort of have a quibble with your point in that I don't think that like as much as we tell ourselves the story that like Americans love underdogs, I don't know how true that actually is. <laughs> okay. Like, that's something that like people like love to say and they love the idea of it. But like, I just think that the American sports fan likes being the best. They like having the best league here. They like rooting for the winner. And as much as we tell ourselves the story about like how, collectively we love the underdog like maybe in theory but i don't know i i just think that like we are so conditioned to following the best of the best and so there exists this sort of i don't know this complex when it comes to these guys who aren't playing in the best leagues and, and yeah and i get what you're saying and that you would like to think that people would be a little bit more supportive of the local league but again i, I just think that people would would rather watch the best of the best and and another part of it too is that like the guys who are in MLS, like this is going to be an oversimplification, but like they're 
but like overall, like they're usually not quite as good, right? They're not the stars. Mm-hmm. If you were the star of the star, you would be playing for, you would be Christian Pulisic playing for Chelsea. And so these guys who become the lightning rods, A, they're an MLS and B, they typically have a flaw that's easy to pick on. And I think that that all kind of combines into this dynamic. We can't end this conversation without talking about uh, Wando. And when we wanted to give him his his tribute and his due for his goal-scoring exploits across his domestic career, it was very difficult to then not get the reaction from from our listeners. You know, even, even those who were being kind would say, you know, oh, he's had a great career and everything. But man, you know, Belgium and, and that whole and, and that whole big ticket miss. Um, how is he with that? How does that sit with him right now when you consider that he had, by any standards, an excellent career? And yes, and yes, we all have that. I mean, I might as well say it. I have that vision of Wando staring at a gaping goal with the ball sailing into the crowd. How, how is he with that that moment? Yeah, and I mean, uh, another impetus for this story was the fact that I've written about Wando a bunch and gotten to know him a little bit. And I find him to just be like a fascinating guy because I understand why he is defined by that moment. I also think that it's like a tremendous human story when you take like a step back that like, if you just ask the average person, like imagine that your entire life was built up to this one particular moment and you were probably even reaching, right? Like you, you probably shouldn't have even been in this circumstance, but like you have worked for years and years striving towards this one particular goal that you never even thought you would reach. And then you're there and you screw it up. And like, and not only that, like there is really no possibility for redemption. Like no one ever thought Wanda was going to be back on the team, even had they made it in 2018. Like that was his one chance. And so how do you then go back and like redevote yourself to your craft and like continue to keep trying, knowing that you're never going to have another chance at this like glorious moment. Um, And so like that has always kind of informed my coverage of him, just because I think that's, that is some level of determination that I find very admirable. Um, and, but I mean, having said all of that, like, I don't even necessarily know, know if he sees it that way himself. Like he has, I've written about this over the course of years and he has kind of slowly opened up more and more about how much it affected him because like, understandably like, Hey, like how much do you want to share with a reporter for public consumption generally? But he was always kind of like, yeah, like it was hard, but I kept going and I put my head down and I kind of overcame it. And soccer was kind of the salvation for me. But this was actually like maybe ironically the most honest he had been about being like, yeah, like for two years, like it really sucked. Like it did. And like and it was really hard for me. It was hard for my family. And like you couldn't get away from it. And it affected me. Um, And I thought that that was like a really honest answer and as honest that I had heard from him because like how couldn't it be right on like a human level? Um, and, and yet even now it's like, yeah, you write a Wando thing and you see it every <laughs> single time. And it makes you feel bad for the guy. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, along those lines, Matt, I'm curious, the guys that you spoke with, or even in the past, you know, you talk about Jossie's artists talking about this. Are they aware of, of these perceptions of them? Like, are they, do they know that they are lightning rods? Like when you talked to Wando, was there an initial conversation where he was like, wait, not everyone gets this treatment. Like did Zardis, like, does he like, 
Tim Weah doesn't see this online? Is it, this is? Did they have to be kind of almost told that they were lightning rods? Um, no, but that's a really good question because I thought about that going into the story. Cause like, Hey, I wasn't sure who would even want to talk about this generally, but every single person I reached out to, they got the premise immediately. Mm-hmm. Like they, they very much understand like how they are perceived. Um, and I thought that, yeah, that, that's a really good question, but yeah, like they, they know for sure. And that informs kind of how they feel about all this. Last one from me. Um, <laughs> how clever was it for U.S. soccer to decide to take all the pressure off these players and appoint a lightning rod as manager? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I think it's always going to be the thing, though, right? <laughs> like, I mean, Jurgen Klinsmann was coming completely the opposite way, yeah. Eurocentric fan, and it's not like he was beloved in any way. No. So, but, but, Matt, like, Matt, can he get. Of course, he can get out of it, but is there any way that there can? I mean, we obviously because we do reaction podcasts to every U.S. men's national team game, we kind of see it in real time. The roller coaster with this coach, it's either people aren't mentioning him and they're talking about the players and a good performance, or it's a bad performance and it's all about Bearhalter. Is there any way you can navigate out of this? Probably not just knowing the fan base for what it is. I mean, well, I mean, the way to get out of it is just to continue to win and make yeah. it warm up and like make a run to the semifinals. Like that's the way to get out of it. Um, <laughs> but, it, and I would, I would point out that I think it's a little bit different in that fairly or unfairly, like I think like the coach of the national team kind of knows what they're signing up for. To right. Like, like that's part of the job is to like soak up all this criticism and that part of like the backlash, I don't know about backlash, but the reaction to this story, like a lot of people, like you might've seen it in the comments or on social media, like they almost prove the point of this story and being like, well, like they're well-paid athletes and this is what happens whenever you're a well-paid athlete. But to an extent, like they don't necessarily sign up for this, right? Like they're just really good at their sport and they like have this dream of representing their country at a very high level. Um, and I think that's part of what makes all of this interesting and kind of like tragic to an extent is like they didn't ask to become this like they get turned into this scapegoat where and, and maybe that's me being a little bit unfair to Berhalter because it's like that's not fun for him either I'm sure but I just think that like as a national team coach I feel like you know what you're getting into to an extent that like the players to a person were taken aback by just sort of like the passion and the vitriol whenever they first got called in um, which I just thought was kind of an interesting dynamic. Matt, last one from me. So you've written this piece about lightning rods in soccer, and have you now yourself, by proxy, become a lightning rod? It, it, the reaction to this piece, do you, have, you, have you gotten responses of, how dare you write this about Wando? He's a legend. Have you gotten the, the other side of the coin? I'm curious what sort of response it's received. Like a little bit, but like, Part of the point of like being a very powerful lightning rod is that they soak up all the attention, right? So <laughs> like I I got a little bit of it, but almost all of it immediately went to like talking about Zardes's touch and Wando's miss. Like right. it just like they they still <laughs> kind of have that capacity to be the focal point of that. Um, which again kind of proves the point of what I was going for. <laughs> I don't think there's ever been an American sports figure whose uh, first touch or technical aspect of their game has occupied the mind quite like Jossie Zardes. I guess that's a, an achievement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
again, and, and to the same degree that I admire how Wando sort of like finished his career. Like, I mean, Jassy has that, those complaints have been out there for him for a really long time. And he has still made like a really good career for himself. Yeah. One of MLS cups. Like he's still in the picture and whether you like him or not, like he's probably going to be on the world cup team, assuming that they qualify. So yeah. Yeah. Again, like it, good for him to an extent for sure. Well, good stuff, Matt. Uh, we really enjoyed it. I feel like if you ever go all in on this and write a book, I, I feel like you've stumbled on the title. Zardes's touch and Wando's miss the story of the U S men's national team. Uh, this was great. The Athletic is where you can check it out. Matt Pence, thanks so much for your time, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. Matt Pence, good stuff. I I knew that would be fun. As soon as I saw the article, JJ, like we said, yeah. it was just like, is this, can I ask you a question? We didn't really get into this before, before we, we break and get ready for uh, Sergio Patrick coming up next. But is, is this, you know, you've been, you spent your, your youth, a lot of your life in Ireland, in a European country that is mm. also soccer crazy and that cares deeply about its national team in fact much like in the u.s correct me if i'm wrong but i would mu- i would muster a guess that the irish national team is a bigger deal than the irish domestic league oh yeah okay so very much so very much so does this is this uniquely american or does this no. exist in ireland as well where there are these figures that just for whatever reason fans gather around for better or worse well i mean you know in ireland just outside of the sporting context like Bono, Bono <laughs> should be the most celebrated Irishman of all time, and it's just are one of the most celebrated artists. Let's calm it down a bit, JJ. But one of the most celebrated people in Irish life, and he he just isn't. He gets tons of abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I remember a time in the soccer context where Robbie Keane was oh, persona non grata is not correct, but he, I mean, his mid career, even when things were going really well. Uh, you know, oh, he's greedy. He's he's always complaining, throwing his hands around. Um, so this is not this is not unique at all. Um, but what is unique and what's interesting about Matt's piece is that there is there's so many different elements uh, in the U.S. soccer zeitgeist right now that drive this. You know, there's the European versus MLS kind of battle. There's the um, just the sheer size of the country and so many competing opinions as to who should be in the team and, and our own kind of uh, not self-hate, but a little bit of self-loathing, neuroses, all that mixed together. And also, you know, just the time we live in with social media and you get that. And, um, and that's what you get straight after us national team games, this kind of this heady mix of rage um, it's part of what so- it's part of what makes all of it. I mean, as a fan, there is some fun to it. Like it's this fan base that just it cares to a level that's almost unhealthy. But well, it I, cares. by the way, by by the way, it, it's worth saying that I think the vast majority of of U.S. national team fans that we come across, uh, men's national team fans, I should say, uh, are amazing. And oh they, yeah. Th- they really love it. They're obsessed about it in, in, a, in a healthy way. Then there's others who are vicious and, and, and it's almost a battleground for their knowledge. It's like they want to tell you why you're wrong about this 
and you don't watch games is another big one. And oh, if you if you even took it, you know, an opportunity to watch this guy in Belgium or this guy in the Netherlands, mm. it's it's. I mean, really, we shouldn't divorce it too much from what goes on in social media anyway. Um, yeah, in this kind of current culture war that we're that we're in the middle of. I guess it's kind of what it is to have a fan base that is obsessed with a team that, in the grand scheme of things, barely plays. And so every single thing that happens is just is, like is, magnified tenfold. Is massive, absolutely. And and also, um, supporters, once upon a time, didn't have any way to have their voices heard apart from going to the game. Or writing I mean, a letter. Or a letter. There was <laughs> online forums and there were, you, you could protest, but you'd have to organize a protest. You'd have to get a bunch of people together. You know, you'd have to do all those things. And now you can just go online and and vent and roar and scream and and because we spend so much of our honestly andrew we really need to just put the phone down mm-hmm. and and you know me i need to do it more than anyone just put it away you know um because so much of it is like just nasty performative pointless <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, the, the one I the one I really felt sorry for in reading Matt's piece at the Athletic was, I mean, look, no one deserves it. Jonathan Bornstein, who, whoever, none of them deserve to get this kind of hate. They're doing the best they can. The Wando one feels, it feels particularly cruel in a way, because it's not like you know, with some of these players, there's this you know, the lightning rod element centers around the idea that they're you know maybe they're just not good enough. What? Why is that guy playing for us? Yeah. You know, with Wando, it's centered around what is essentially the worst individual moment of his career. And so, like with Zardes, it's not like can't we do better at the striker position? With you know, it's it's I can't believe he missed that shot. What a bum! You know, yeah. Like it. It feels. It's also particular. Like he didn't want to miss that. Like that was the like like Matt was just saying that was the culmination of his professional life. Like also a lot of fans. And supporters, and I'm not talking about soccer fans in the U.S. I'm talking about the casual fan. Didn't know who Chris Wondolowski was. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, they he wasn't. He wasn't no, obscure. Didn't. Andrew, Andrew, I would, I would say that there is a lot of people who tune in to watch the national team because, like you said, it's the big, it's the big, it's the big thing to watch in U.S. soccer is our national team. And I would say, not now. But even back then in, okay. in, in 2014, that there were plenty of people who knew who Landon Donovan was. They knew him particularly because he wasn't there. They they knew about Clint Dempsey. They had, you know, a, a, a kind of vague idea of, of this team. But they certainly wouldn't have known who Wondolowski was. And then they, they do the usual. Mm-hmm. Plays in MLS. Never heard of him before. This is what a bum. Right. And I think a lot of that... that um, I do think there's a lot of U.S. men's national team fans who don't watch um, very much or any MLS. I think you're right. And I think that that's a problem. That's unfortunate. Yep. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to go from lightning rods domestic to one of Brazilian descent, JJ. Uh, a current soccer superstar turned 30 this week. We thought because of that it would be a good time to kind of Go go a little retrospective. Look at his career. Talk about has it exceeded expectations, met expectations, fallen short of expectations. We'll do that next. Neymar, JJ, we talk about him with Sergio Patrick in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. 
Oh, back now on Caught Offside. JJ, we talked about this earlier, 30 years old. Neymar still, he's one of those guys who I feel like sometimes is kind of trapped in time for me. I just have like a very a very young view of him. Um, maybe just because he do came too, up. I do too, and I think when you watch the documentary of Perfect Chaos and you see him as this skinny child playing for Santos, you, you're taken aback a bit because, you know, as we get older, we thicken out a bit, but he almost looks like a different person. <laughs> well, we we just found you know his career up to this point to be such an interesting one, uh, so intriguing on so many different levels. So we thought we'd go a little bit deeper on it as he, like we said, now has just turned 30. Uh, so Sergio Patrick, a guy who we've spoken with many times in the past, he was on with us pre- uh, previewing Brazil in one of our first ever podcasts before the 2014 World Cup, formerly with Radio Bande Ranches, now with CNN Brazil, and an author we hear as well. Sergio Patrick back on the show. What's up, man? How you doing? Hey, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Uh, hey, JJ. So good to talk soccer with you guys, especially uh, when when we're gonna be talking about someone so so special, especially talented like Neymar. Uh, I'm a fan of his of his game. Um, not sure I can say the same about the the whole combo, the whole personality, but. We'll talk more about it, right? Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. And I guess this is the big question, which we kind of teased before this interview, and it's the one that we'll pick apart as we go through it. But, you know, he's 30 now. He's been in the public consciousness for many years, uh, 15, 14 years or so. Um, Up to this point, for whatever we thought his career was going to be, has it been better than what you thought? Worse than what you thought? Pretty much exactly what you thought? How would you perceive his career so far? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, now that he's turning thirty, I think um, I think I, I was I would ex- I was expecting when he started um, Neymar at thirty to be bigger than he is now. Hmm. I think at this point, um, like especially in two thousand and eleven, uh, so eleven years ago already, playing for Santos, uh, like massive talent I, I would expect him to you know have a couple of those uh trophies that Messi and Cristiano used to like hold a door at their homes you know yeah. they have too many of them the the Ballon d'Ors and the FIFA the best and all those uh and and uh, to be more relevant for this generation for sure um Sergio so let's talk about that to be more relevant for this generation um I've been watching a perfect chaos, the Neymar documentary, and you know, it's it's not it's an imperfect documentary in terms of it doesn't give me the answers that I really wanted. But if if you look back to uh, the Copa Libertadores, and it would have been 2011, and then you look onto his career, lifting the Champions League, then in Europe with Barcelona, this guy was just a thrilling player from from almost like this this guy who could take on and beat anybody in Brazil, this skinny player, and then to the Barcelona version where after, you know, a shaky little start, after a few games, he really clicks with Messi and Suarez and creates possibly the greatest forward line we've seen in, in modern football. You can argue that. You certainly can, however brief they were together. And then things tail off. Does it just come down to the decision to move to PSG or are there other things going on with Neymar? I think it was a combination of factors. PSG was one decision, but um, and you can see it in the documentary. 
how he has a unique relationship with his dad. Yeah. Not the uh, probably not what we have with our uh, fathers and people that are listening to us because uh, they work together. His father is, is his manager. But we all know that uh, for a soccer player, a manager is not someone you work for. It's someone that works for you. So it's like complicated. Uh, they love each other. They are like best friends sometimes, uh, but they also have some some issues. Uh, and of course, like Neymar, dad uh, only has the comfortable lifestyle that he has because his son is like a, a world-class player. Um, he knows that, and now his son is aware of that. So uh, that that's just part of the equation. Uh, and I honestly, since the beginning of his career, knowing that that was going to be um, the arrangements for his professional um, uh, structure, because it's, I mean, an athlete like that is an enterprise, right? This guy yeah. has like 169 million followers on Instagram, 16 brands on his website. So, uh, I mean, yeah, and you have that kind of relationship within your, your family. Um, I think it was not just going to Paris. There was more uh, involved. It was, and also like a person that um, was so talented so early in his life that he knew that like there was a very little chance that things were not going to go well. Right. So, and he never heard of anyone around him from what I'm aware of, of course, um, that like, you know, like you shouldn't do this. Yeah. Maybe try, try it a different way. It was always like, you're the best. You're doing everything right, man. The world's wrong and you got this. And, and what that does to, you know, a person's um, brain, a person's head when, uh, when they're like still developing as a teenager, as a young adult, I can't even imagine, you know, I think of all the silly things I did when I was in my twenties, you know, if I had all that, I think the perfect chaos is a, brilliant title for uh for uh his documentary and it's also neymar embracing uh sort of like the bad boy that he tried not to be for for a while in his career and mm. now i think in at least from a brand perspective they're like you know what if this is what's going to be then let him be the bad boy let him be the perfect chaos he's still selling a lot at least uh, yes and i think he has ball to play still right it does. It does come across. Um, it does come across, Sergio, that his father. I mean, throughout the documentary, he doesn't really talk about. Well, this is our aims, our goals towards winning a World Cup or winning another Champions League. I mean, obviously, the desire is to win a Champions League with PSG. It's the whole point of the project, the whole point to bring him there. But the father talks about branding all the time. Do you think that football? Because the father is the is the the head of this whole operation, I think football has taken a back seat for Neymar. I think so. I think so. And in, in in many moments of his career, we saw that. Uh, it's hard to say why injuries occur. It's, it's hard to say why people uh, uh, get bigger or thicken, like you you said, like throughout their career. You know. Uh, but we know uh, the amount of distractions that someone globally famous can have, you know. So, yes, I think there's uh, a lot of focus on the brand, maybe too much. I, I think about him and I kind of compare um, him with um, Kevin De Bruyne, that is pretty mm -hmm. much same generation. Mm. Uh, and I 
would I would say probably like equally talented or I mean you can discuss you can debate but very good very good player and so like so different in terms of how he presents himself and I think and how he makes money with his brand too so those are choices that uh, someone with that kind of exposition uh, will make and uh, I guess what the the path that David Backen kind of like um, yeah. spotted for, for soccer players, uh, Neymar embraced, embraced 100%. So like I said, 30 years old, I think we see, I mean, I, I saw Ibra like uh, with this, doing this crazy workout this week at 40 years old, still playing like pretty good level in Italy. I hope we'll still see uh, good soccer, very good soccer, exciting soccer coming from Neymar. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. You know, we, we talk about Ronaldo sometimes, Cristiano Ronaldo. When he turned 30, he never lost a step. In some ways, you know, we sometimes look at his statistics pre-30 and post-30. He kicked it up a notch even when he turned 30. 30 was was truly just a number for him. Mm-hmm. What like about Tom Neymar? Brady in his 40s, yeah, right? yeah, same thing with Brady. What about mm-hmm. Neymar, though? You know, injuries have taken a toll on him in a different way. Uh, you know, h- how do you see the next five, six, seven years going for him? Honestly, like, big question mark. A guy like Cristiano Ronaldo is a lot more predictable in that sense. You know, you know what he wants, you know what he's going to do, you know, I mean, what his routine is going to be, you know, like training like crazy and, and trying like crazy when he's playing. And he's obsessed with winning, he's obsessed with his numbers. Uh, so you have an idea of how this is going. With Neymar, again, the perfect chaos. Like it can go like to like so many different directions. Unfortunately, he's been injured a lot uh, and not just the last few years. I mean, this has been a, a thing since, I don't know, the World Cup in 2014, I would say, right? Um, big moments, unfortunately, um, uh, he's been um, having physical problems. Uh, and then there's all the, the all that, surrounds him you know that sometimes uh, and you see cristiano for example his focus is on soccer but he's making money a lot more money outside of soccer right with his amazing um instagram account and all that so for neymar i think it depends on uh what his focus will be i can't predict i i remember like a few special moments Seeing Neymar, we talked about 2011, the Libertadores with Santos. Uh, 2013 with Brazil, the Confederations Cup. Spain was the best team in the world, and Brazil crushed Spain. Brazil beat uh, Italy, Uruguay in that tournament. So it was, it was, Neymar was playing super well. And then 15 with Barcelona, and even 2020 with PSG, uh, reaching the uh, the UCL, the, the Champions League final. So, uh, I mean, what he's able to do is, is pretty special. But um, I also uh, comparing him, say, with Cristiano, I don't think he is a guy that um, that evolved uh, as much as Cristiano. It's probably a bad thing to compare anyone with Cristiano because he just like kept getting better and better uh, as as he uh, grew old. But many players, when they get to their 28, 30 years old, this age is very special. It's when they are experienced, they still have a, a physically, they're still very, uh, very strong. Uh, and that combination is powerful when they reach their prime. And I think um, the, the special, the things that we see that are special about Neymar are pretty much the things that uh, we saw when he was like 21, 20. 
so it's very special. It's very, very nice to see, and it can be enough for like a like a short uh, tournament. Say, you know, win the World Cup with Brazil this year. You know, I don't, I don't think it's impossible, yeah. but uh, I think that, that it it depends. The next few years will depend on his focus uh, because there's still some some growth, even for someone as talented as him. Um, final one for me, Sergio. Uh, look, I know he's beloved in Brazil, but what is the perception amongst the, how shall I put this, the football intelligentsia in Brazil? What is, where, what's his standing now, Neymar? I mean, I just saw a headline from Marca. Neymar turns 30 uh, and is injured and out of form. So, you know, that's a pretty stark headline. But what is the perception of where he's at right now amongst football people in Brazil? I think uh, people still see him as, um, like in many ways, as a teenager. Uh, and I mean, the way he makes decisions professionally, at least soccer related, not talking about his, his brand or also uh, somewhat a professional uh, side of the, of the story. But, um, uh, and, and also, I think someone that, didn't really like the last few years were years when um, like the sports stars really like showed up as more than just like uh, athletes uh, and 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 uh, and brands. They were they are activists. They right. they are are doing much more uh, with their platforms. And um, I think in general in Brazil, there's some disappointment that um, Neymar not only uh, I mean is not very vocal about, you know, racism and uh, inequality in Brazil, but he is actually a supporter of the president. Uh, and it's, I mean, and of course I respect people that support the president. I don't, uh, mm. but it's just, um, it shows a little bit of a disconnect from her. He, the way he grew up as like, uh, most Brazilians do, you know, with not a lot of resources, not a lot, uh, um, to, um, to to not not a lot to have. His family was like a lower middle class family, and um, and it's like a his his persona and his public persona is completely disconnected from that. It's just like a, a millionaire and uh, hangs out with the with the millionaires and just does does stuff that like super rich people do. It's not. Uh, someone that can go beyond soccer and connect with just the average Brazilian in different levels. Last one from me, you know, Neymar is from a legacy perspective, it feels like he's at a bit of a crossroads and, you know, whatever happens in these next few years could determine how he's remembered for generations to come. And so with that, I I sort of wonder what would do more to enhance his legacy, uh, winning a Champions League with PSG or winning a World Cup with Brazil? I think winning a World Cup with Brazil, because I, of course, this may be just because I'm Brazilian. Uh, <laughs> forgive, forgive me for that. But like, uh, I remember playing soccer, and um, and we would be like the first thing we would do. Just we, you would name like a like a massive player to for you to be, you know, playing with your friends. So you would scream like Pelé, Zico, Garincha, and 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 you would you know pretend you were one of those and i'm sorry for especially gahisha because i'm a defender and i never did anything that uh looked like what he, the way he played but i probably 
yelled his name a few times because <laughs> you know sure. that that's what you heard when you were a kid. Yeah, uh, and I I know that a lot of kids look up to him, and I know that like it's on his shoulders to and and if you look at like previous generations. Rivaldo, Romario, um, Kaká, Ronaldo—they were playing like pretty much at the same time, uh, and it, it makes things a little easier, right? He is kind of like the one start of this of this generation for Brazil. Still, there are very good players around him. He can win the World Cup, and I think that would be very important to uh, to really change the, the perception about him and put him like with the. Uh, with the best players ever, because he's he's probably going to be the the uh, Brazil's uh, best scorer uh, because he's only seven goals away from Pele, so it's going to happen. But it doesn't mean that he has like ooh, a half of a th- or a third of the respect that people have for Pele. You know, yeah. the admiration and the love. So I also hope that some of the young players uh, like Anthony, like Vinny Jr., that bring this like. Brazilian game, you know, uh, to the national team, the dribbling, the speed. Uh, I hope that they help him, you know, because the the coach Tite is a very good coach, a, a great uh, great guy, um, but uh, he's usually very pragmatic. He's, he's usually like a system uh, coach, uh, and so his teams can be kind of boring. And then Neymar is kind of like stuck in that like boring team. So if you have like more talent, I hope that uh, you have what he needs, you know, to I mean, he's having fun playing with Paqueta, which is a good player. But like, if you go and you, I think Anthony and Vinny Jr. are more talented, and they can give him more of those options. Not like Suarez and Neymar, but like something for him to have fun with. I think and he t- elevates his game when he plays with with people like that. Yeah, and take the pressure off him. Yeah, right. I hope so. Yeah. Well, fascinating stuff. Sergio Patrick, CNN Brazil, uh, Neymar, such an enigmatic figure, and we uh, we really enjoyed spending some time uh, talking about his career up to this point. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, I still turn the, the TV on to, to see what he's going to do, so I think it's a good indicator of how fascinating he is. Let's hope to see good stuff in the next few years. Always a pleasure talking soccer with you guys and listening to you guys all uh, the time. Thanks. Thanks, man. Take care. Take Thanks, care. Sergio. Sergio Patrick. Good stuff. Appreciate, uh, always appreciate catching up with him. Boy, I was saying before, JJ, how he was one of our first guests, probably. Yeah. In the early days of, uh, of the Sergio podcast. Patrick, Hope Solo, and DeAndre Yedlin. <laughs> what a mix. Yeah. Jeff Carlisle, he was one of the first ones. But yeah. Neymar, he's, you know, sometimes I feel bad because we, you know, a lot of what he does kind of happens in the dark. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's in a league where I'm not trying to throw shade on League Up, but it's not the best league it's not the but, second but best sorry, league it's not you're third past, it's top sorry, 4 I, 5 league and and you know so he made that decision you're right for lots of money i have no sympathy for that and and it wasn't like he wasn't advised you know one thing in the documentary is where there were so many people telling him don't do this it's not a good idea yeah and you know i i i can't be um you know i i i look look at look at the way messi's gone since he's since he's turned up there, you know, it's just, it's, uh, he wanted to be center stage. And in the end, he ends up with the guy who was center stage at the other club. He left so he could be center stage and they're both on the side stage together, except when they play in the champions league. Um, who would have thought that a Neymar and Messi team, play, uh, you know, duo playing together wouldn't be a lock for the champions league. Yeah. That's 
Well, you kind of thought that, in fairness to you. I mean, we'll oh, see. I, There's still a lot more to go. But No, I thought that. But I, I, what I mean is, like, in 2015. Oh, oh, okay. You know, like, if you were saying, hey, we're going to have, these guys are going to stay together. Suarez is going to move off somewhere else, do his own thing. But we're going to have the biggest talent in world football outside of these two guys alongside him as a young player and Kylian Mbappe. We're going to have those three together. What do you think of that? And most people in 2015, 2016 would have said, that'll, that'll be amazing. Mm -hmm. But um, football doesn't really work like that. Yeah. Uh, that's about all we got. It's a lot of midweek action going on as uh, the international window really, truly comes to an end. I mean, I guess it did over the weekend as well, but uh, lots of Premier League stuff going on today. Manchester United against Burnley. FIFA Club World Cup going on. Palmeiras was a 2-0 winner earlier today as well. We'll see what Chelsea does. Uh, so we're right back in it, right back in it. It never it never quite goes away, JJ, never, ever. The football is officially going on forever. Yep. Uh, hey, that's it, my friend. To you, I say... Take you later, fun boy. See you later. Take care, man. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 